Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trond Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 123 of the podcast, the topic is regenerative business. Our guest is Alan Moore, designer, author, and consultant. In this conversation, we talk about what regenerative business practices truly entail, which is to go well beyond sustainability. We discuss how beauty gives us the oxygen needed and how we need to reclaim it, giving ourselves as architects, designers, creators, or innovators the permission to think about that mysterious, awesome concept and reality of beauty. Alan, how are you today? I'm very good, Sean. Uh, really good to uh, be with you uh, on this uh, interview. Yes. So we had a tiny conversation, which I'm so happy about because I'm starting to understand you are a mix of a craftsman, book designer, metaphysical thinker, you're a designer, you are a coach. I, I and you're also a musician, so we I don't know if we're going to be covering that. Um, but you're you're really digging into humanity's depth and also with very strong implications for its future. I wanted maybe for you to give us a sense of how that got started. I know you worked with uh, a, a great British graphic designer, Derek Birdsall. I know you initially were going to become a book designer, but how does one go from from book designer to sort of world inspiring coach and uh, an author of a beautiful <laughs> set of books? Well, thank you very much. Um, the story starts uh, doing a, a publishing um, degree at Oxford Polytechnic, uh, which I sort of fell into accidentally, and. Uh, that really was a, a three-year study in terms of uh, the old ways of book publishing and making and, and all the rest of it, but it, it covered everything. But I fell in love with the idea that uh, you could take someone's idea that was in their head and in their heart, they would write it down as a manuscript. You could take that manuscript, you could turn it into a book, so metaphysical ideas into world reality which then gets produced as an artifact in this instance, a book, which then gets disseminated out to the rest of the world. And I can't remember standing there <clears throat> having bound these 70 copies of this book and went, that is just amazing. I mean, that really lit the blue touch paper for me um, in so many ways. And I just fell in love with the idea of, of the making of those things. Um, Derek, uh, you know, took me under his wing um, because I didn't really have any real kind of formal education around design at all. Um, and he became really this incredible, you know, mentor for, for me. But the, the important part of that also, I suppose, in that very early days was ideas can change things, um, put into the world that is interesting. Uh, and the, a designer from the background I came from, from the concept of craft, as I started then to practice with the work that I was doing initially for um, lots of very, very well-known artists, actually, um, was that you were in service to the greater good. So for me, design was not about, um, you know, being a star or being uh, famous um, or all of those things that in the 80s, you know, there were lots of designers were well-known for creating their own kind of concept of brand, I saw it as something much more fundamental. You are in service to a greater good. And that, to me, always stuck with me. Um, from there, I kind of fell into advertising literally by getting into the back of a, <laughs> a black taxi cab uh, on London Charing Cross Road, where uh, actually a very famous guy uh, also asked me to do an impromptu uh, portfolio presentation because he climbed into the back of the cab because it was raining and he said, do you mind if I share this cab with you? And he looks at me and he says, what's in your portfolio? And I said, well, my work. And he said, well, let's have a look. So um, I'm in the back <laughs> of this cab. Um, he's traveling close to where I'm going, which is to uh, King's Cross. And he went, 
my God, he didn't use those words, but for the sake of the interview, he said, my God, you know, two graphic designers, typographers in the back of a cab. Um, and I'd done this poster, um, which actually really opened many doors for me, actually. Uh, and he said, I want, I, want, I want one of those. And so he got out of the cab, shook my hand, and actually I got back in touch with him a little bit later. And that introduced me to the world of advertising. Um, and as a consequence of that, I traveled the world, um, it, which is all through serendipity in many ways. I worked in Vienna. I worked in the Nordics. Uh, I ended up working around the world. But what was interesting was is going to Finland, actually, in the early 90s. And uh, I had two, well, I had a job which was to raise the creative standards of this overall agency, which was a very interesting uh, journey for me in terms of leadership. But I also saw mobile telephony take off. And what was really interesting was is that uh, when I joined uh, the agency in 92, there were a few mobile phones hanging around the place um, and in Helsinki. By the time I left two years later, the country was literally wringing itself off of its knees um, or <laughs> off of its ears or whatever you want to call it. And the other bizarre story of that was is coming back because I live in Cambridge and here we are in Silicon Fen right? Uh, this is the place where cutting edge technology has, happens. I was walking uh, in Cambridge Saturday morning uh, on the phone, on my mobile phone to someone in Finland, because there was no one in England then that I knew that had a mobile phone. And this guy comes up to me and he says, who do you think you are walking down the street with your mobile phone? Who do you think? And I was really taken aback because I thought, well, mate, if you were in downtown Helsinki right now, uh, everybody would be on their mobile phone. And in a sense, the big connection here is, I suppose, my work was always or came out of this interest of communication, how we communicate, how communication drives uh, information flows, um, how that's disseminated. These are the things that were going on in my head. And so I kind of realized that in 92, 93, that our world would be fundamentally reordered and reshaped by digital communication technologies from top to bottom. And all of that had to do with communication and it had everything to do with design. Hmm. That's, um, it's fascinating. And it ties, it ties us to the, to the present time as well, where I think we are going through um, arguably another set of, uh, of sort of finished developments. I guess the world has cell phones by now, but there are other things that are happening that are sort of path changing. I want, I wanted you to address a, a very basic question that I know you have tried to answer in the book and in other work. What is growth? And, Very good and, and I want you to answer it from a couple of angles because I know in advertising and in all the industries you've been asked to opine on and with, it has so many different meanings. Yeah. But it seems to me that you started fairly early on to challenge what that notion was, and you have developed a fairly all-encompassing notion of what it means. And I want you to yeah. maybe elaborate on how you got there. Okay. So there was a period in my life where um, I played this very, uh, well, was given a, an incredible opportunity, I suppose, which was this crossover from digital to analog where products and services, even how you communicated about those things, uh, weren't really understood because we were pioneering in that field. People saw great opportunities. And so I became someone known that could take really challenging um business uh, projects uh, around innovation how do you lead a team down that road to really realize those things as a as a concept as an understanding as a service or product that could live in the world and that was all great uh, and very interesting other than the fact that the driver for this was uh, growth for growth's sake profit at all and any cost, regardless of the value creation that you were making other than it was a shareholder value. And the idea of, well, it's only business, to me, seemed like a really thin veil of it means that we can do anything to anybody as long as we extract the maximum amount of revenue out of a system or whatever it was. And to me, that was not about the values of why we should be in business in the first place. And um, 
in a sense, that kind of, uh, let's call it a neoliberal view of economics uh, and business um, was a mantra that everyone kind of got uh, behind, a narrative, uh, a belief system. But all I could see was is actually a lot of damage being done to people in organisations, to consumers, um, to people using those products and services and the wider society. Um, and I wrote a book in 2011 called No Straight Lines, Making Sense of Our Nonlinear World, where I said we were at the adaptive edge of our industrial society. And we need to really rethink fundamentally what is going to happen because we're about to move into a world which I described as being nonlinear. Um, I didn't quite understand quite how nonlinear it was going to get, but here we are. And I think we are here because of the consequences of just that, that idea that or we're interested in growth. So yes, we have to go back to the idea, therefore, that we have to look at one of the greatest R&D projects um, ever run, um, or is still running, actually, which is how the cosmos works and how nature works. And nature runs the... Um, uh, she runs a program which creates the conditions for all life to thrive. Um, and um, as a friend said to me, you know, if we want to move forward, we've got to start thinking in circles. We can't be thinking in the concepts of in infinite growth. So in the, uh, in, in, uh, in the new book, uh, In Do Build, I talk about this idea of a set of values and metrics around what I call the regenerative economy. Um, and that idea of first about not what we take, but what do we contribute? Uh, a really big question that I think businesses need to be asked. What is it exactly are you contributing to this world? Uh, I think we need to think about societal interests, social impact. We need to think about uh, or move from the, the idea of exponential growth um, and actually the idea that we measure success on quarterly based, you know, we need to increase our revenue by 25% this year to say we actually start to think about circular growth. And what does that mean? Um, because if we aren't consistently creating value for everybody um, and we have to look at all stakeholders in this, um, then actually we aren't really contributing to the growth that we need, which is also linked to that idea of longer horizon lines, the idea of being a good ancestor uh, and the idea of legacy. You know, how are we creating something uh, which we are handing down to our children and our children's children to wider generations? Um, because it also comes back to that question, which is uh, if we want to be around for um, a little bit longer and let's say we want to be around for an eternity, then we have to really fundamentally rethink what growth is and what it means um, and actually kind of what is it that we are measuring as a consequence of the ideas of success. One of the ways that you suggest to getting at these issues, which, you know, they seem so simple when you line them up here, because, you know, it's it seems easy to ask the questions, but I know that if you are in business and you are embedded in this logic that you speak of, right? If you are embedded mm. in this logic of linear growth, this mm. is not so easy. You, you suggest almost like a meditative practice. And I think I share this uh, power in walking with you, this idea that walking has regenerative um, aspects to it. When is it that you started realizing the power of the conversation when walking and that you started doing your coaching and, 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 you know, exploring ideas through being outside, I guess, in, in nature and, and having that, that connection. Mm. Well, it started, I suppose, about 11 years ago. I mean, actually, I mean, I've, uh, not now, but I, 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 uh, with my father-in-law at the time, who's sadly not with us anymore, but you know, we we built and created a gar a two-acre garden together over a long period of time. So my hands were always in the soil. Um, I never imagined actually that I would be doing those things, but um, they were very important to me. And um, 
there was a period in my life about 11 years ago where I wasn't a, a particularly well person. And uh, I remember sitting down with a, a therapist and uh, they said to me, um, so Alan, uh, what time do you start work in the morning? And I said, well, about, I don't know, 7.30, 8 o'clock. And what time do you finish in the evening? What time do you finish work? And I said, well, about, I don't know, 8, 9 o'clock in the evening. And they said, well, what do you do between those two, you know, those 12, 14 hours? I said, well, I work. And uh, she then says to me, um, but you live in the countryside, don't you? And I said, well, I do. Um, and we did. Uh, and we still do. And she said, well, you could go for a walk. And it was a bit like someone telling me, you know, that the earth is flat. Well, it's actually round. I mean, it was, that was the level of kind of craziness. And then by serendipity, actually, we, we got a dog. We'd, I'd never had a dog before. Uh, it was supposed to be for my son, but it quickly became mine. And really, Piper became my walking uh, partner. And so I decided to take um, the advice that was given to me that I could allow myself the permission to actually go for a two-hour walk in nature. And what I found was is that, uh, you know, two hours was a really good reset for me spiritually um, and allowed me to really reconnect with the world. It's Walking is completely different to running. Um, it's slow time. It's proper time. Um, there's a different kind of cognition and spirituality, soulfulness that comes through that reconnection. Uh, and so the 11 years, I still walk every day now. Sadly, Piper's passed away. She's gone to the, you know, the big uh, kennel in the sky, um, sadly. But in a sense, she was a huge part of allowing me um, to experience that. And then I kind of realized that, you know, there was that uh, reconnection of the hand, the heart and the mind as you walked. And that's where I thought, well, maybe people might like to come for a, you know, a walk with me. And uh, I would treat that person as a whole person and not as a kind of a part of a person. And what's been amazing is that so many people feel that it is such an extraordinary experience and yet it's such a simple technology uh, to walk alongside somebody. Yes. But something very profound happens because you're, you're synchronizing, you're in a very creative space actually you are equals because you're side by side, you're moving forward. So there's a sense of progression. Um, and you can hold that space with great compassion and great kindness. And um, we can talk about many, many deep things uh, on that journey. But what's important is they're all joined up to each other and trying to help someone to understand that all of those things are necessary and important to them and to the world, rather than that you're hiding parts of yourself mm -hmm. Uh, because you're worried that you're going to be judged or you're not going to be strong enough. And what I've learned is sharing your vulnerability as a leader is not about weakness. That's about incredible strength. Um, and it's one of the key attributes of future leaders that I think we need is that we don't need strong men and strong women. Um, what we need is people that are prepared to show up with all their vulnerability because they're the ones that stand on the strongest ground. You know, it's what you're saying is is deeply uh, profound. I th I think uh, it is the essence of discipleship. I guess to walk together with someone, right? It, it mm. th that's what it means to to truly mentor someone is to allow yourself to be equal on the same level. Because if you're walking together, it doesn't really matter who who is the fastest walker at the end of the day, right? I mean, if you want to walk together, you you walk together. It's, it's, it's a really excellent point, and it's something that uh, I'm glad you've raised um, because it's exactly that, that you come together as, as equals, and I'm, I'm only really a companion and a guide, um, and I'm, I'm in service to you. That's who I'm in service to, um, and to me that's extremely important, uh, that you're really holding that person in their inquiry and what you're doing is helping them direct that inquiry to the places that is most needed for them. All I can use is my knowledge, mm. and my wisdom, and my experience um, to help them see a different possibility, way, opportunity, to use that place of reflection, 
um, whatever that may be. But that is that is my purpose um, as a walking partner. Absolutely, I totally agree with that, and I think it takes me right back to that whole idea of craftsmanship and that idea of being in service to the greater good. I, I want us to move to some case studies because this is also very concrete for you. But before that, let, let's briefly just touch on this and let's see where that goes. You have a very fundamental idea that the meaning of business itself is beauty. Yes. Can you, can you start unpacking that a little bit? And then, you know, maybe we can move to case studies. Maybe sure. you don't want to introduce that through case studies. Just give me a sense, give, give my listeners a sense of what that means. It's, it's a foreign phrase, as you and I have talked about, <laughs> right? To, to say that the deep meaning of business is beauty. I mean, yes. I'm slightly in tune with sort of philosophical language. It appeals to me, but mm. I don't know really how to explain it. Can, can you start unpacking that for us? Yeah, I mean, it starts actually with, um, and I think the story is relevant because the point I want to make here is I didn't pick this because I thought it was, um, you know, flavor of the month or, you know, the next, uh, you know, the next sort of 18 months or whatever. It starts with an inquiry in terms of really what my mission was in life having done so many different things and feeling quite divorced from where I was at and how do I get myself home because I think that we all have a home and our best work is is made from working from that really deep interior space of what gets us out of bed on a Monday morning so when I wrote the first book which was do design why beauty is key to everything I had a memory come up uh, for me I was a seven-year-old boy on a beach in Cornwall, family holiday. Um, my mother was quite often a very anxious woman, um, I think in part because of uh, who she was as a person, in part because of family trauma, and in part because, you know, we didn't earn a lot of money and she worried about uh, how you kept food on the table and all those things. But we had some kind of deep umbilical connection in terms of her anxiety really kind of got me very anxious. Um and she was on this beach and she was just like a completely different human being. And it was it gave me great joy, deep joy to see her uh, as almost a, an entirely different human being. My father was a beautiful man. He always was. He only ever lost his temper with uh, us once in his life. He was extraordinary. He was always up for a laugh. He always wanted to play. He was always compassionate and kind and generous. And there he was on the beach and I was with my brothers and my sisters um, and I was playing with my toys and, you know, I'm what, in my 50s at this point and that memory had not come since I'd had it when I was seven. It's funny what comes up when you ask it to come. And I thought I'm at one with the ones I love the most. I'm at one with uh, myself, which quite is, you know, sometimes we're not at one with ourselves. I'm at one with the natural world. And the only integral word that can describe that wholesomeness is beauty um, and that is really where I started the inquiry um, to sort of evolve it from that uh, on that path is the laws of the universe are said to be beautiful uh, Einstein's theory of relativity Paul Dirac's theory about uh, subatomic particles interact over huge distances in space um, as I've already said nature's run the longest R&D project we've ever known um, uh, Frank Vilcek, who wrote a wonderful book, uh, who was a Nobel Prize winning scientist called The Most Beautiful Question in the World, looking at nature's deep design, asked, is the world a work of art? Um, and to me, that whole idea, therefore, is beauty is connected to the idea of regeneration. It's uh, It hitches us to all the best things that make life worthwhile to live and to thrive. And to me, that's where the idea of connecting this idea of beauty was important. The other bit I want to add to that and plug into this part of the conversation is the kind of, I suppose, the ethical uh, and values-based compass 
um, of bringing the good into the world. There was a lady called Iris Murdoch. Um, she was a very famous uh, Cambridge uh, academic and philosopher here, and she wrote a book called The Sovereignty of Good. And she said of the good or the seeking of the good should not be the name of an esoteric object, but should be the tool of every rational man. And that is where I lay down the gauntlet, I suppose, or the challenge to business, which is, can you be regenerative? Can you create the conditions for all life to thrive? Can you bring the good into the world? Can you make a work of quality? Um, can you do that where you are nurturing um, not only your workforce, but the people that you are serving? Um, the old adage is it's either or. It's very binary. Um, the principle of extractive uh, approach to doing things is somehow or other we have to harm something to create something better for us, uh, sort of the win and lose. And I think this is a very poor bar at which we must be setting ourselves um, if we want to kind of really create the types of businesses that the world needs now and into the future. And in your book, you mention uh, a couple of businesses that are doing or are aspiring to, uh, in your mind, doing those things. One of them is a carbon capture startup. So you, you, you talk about Climeworks. Mm. What is it that fascinates you so much about Climb, Climeworks? What, what is it in their approach, in the, your study of the founders, that makes you use them as such a, a pertinent example of, of sort of embodying this, this idea, I guess, of, of uh, having started to approach uh, this deep meaning of business? For sure. Well, it all starts actually on a um, the the story starts with the fact that uh, Jan and um, Jan Wurzbacher and his uh, colleague Christoph um, very keen skiers as, as young men and they would spend uh, their summers um, or winters uh, skiing in Chamonix in the Alps um, and to get to the uh, train the the lift that would take you up to the top of the glacier um, they had to climb up a ladder. Every year they went, the ladder increased by another two meters because that was the amount that the ladder was, uh, the glaciers were retreating, uh, you know, off the mountains because of uh, climate change, right? So Jan and Christoph decided that uh, two things: one is they wanted to carry on skiing, and b um, they may need to fly to get to where they needed to get to. So it wasn't about actually stopping these things, but how do we address them with the skill sets that we've got? The reality is, is that, um, you know, we need to be reduced, taking something like 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide out of the air every year. Um, and that's where they decided that they would develop a technology um, through their skill set, which was actually about taking back carbon. Um, and to me, this is really about uh, incredible a feat of innovation, because a lot of people said to these guys, this technology will never work. Um, and that's what I love about innovation. It was just the creative leap of faith driven by an unreasonableness, which is this is something that I need to address. Um, and I thought that to me was, was very important. When they proved their technology could work, they were then told there was not a business model that would support that um, technology. They've also proven that not to be the case. And, um, the other thing that I think is very important about these guys is they really describe their businesses as being not about climate sustainability, but about regeneration. They're a regenerative business. And that, to me, is very important. In our conversation, Jan says to me, the battles we are facing are stories about belief. And I think this is very interesting. So we don't tell the story in a way that we need to stop doing things. Every story we are telling is around we can do something. We can act. There is a technology that can solve many problems. I'm a skier and a windsurfer, and I want to continue doing those things. So what they've done as a business model is it's not about selling their machines. They're offering a service up to companies like Stripe, um, uh, the online payments company, which is quite big, um, right down to individual people that can pay five euros a month to take a certain quantity of carbon dioxide out the air. And I think it's a really great model, which is, says we can all be part of this solution. 
you know, I don't have the skill set to build carbon capture machines. You know, I didn't study a, a very prestigious engineering school. But what I can do is I can pay five euros a month or five bucks a month or whatever it is to be in part of the change that we need to be in the world. And I really love that. Um, and he went on to say, what I increasingly see is people asking us, how can we contribute to the point I've just made? In a way, the task seems insurmountable, but as an I, but as a we, that is the most powerful tool of trigger and action that we can create. And what I see is, of course, we've gone through an incredible five years, um, you know, politically, economically. The last year then has been on a whole other scale through the pandemic, right? We have a lot of media and press which is telling us that, you know, it's all doom and gloom. But it comes back to that thing about stories and belief, and that's where I think we move the story on into saying we can create a regenerative world and business is the engine of transformation to make that happen uh, because uh, money can be put into that. It can be invested. We can move with speed. We can move with agility. People can coalesce around these things in very different types of ways. We don't need to ask permission. And so, therefore, I use Climeworks as an extraordinary example of a company which has just raised 70 million euros last year uh, to evolve and develop um, their technology as really bringing the good into the world um, at scale. And that to me is why they have to be in the book. It's why they have to be there. Um, it's, um, you know, it's the cool thing and it's the right thing. And it's there to make money. Mm. The last thing I want to say on this is I think it's very important is he says there's a big challenge with VC for this because all of their money comes from private individuals. And he believes, and I'd be interested in, in your view on this, Tron, is that, you know, quite often, uh, you know, a VC fund is based on a five to 10 year kind of um, return on that, on that investment, on that fund. And he says, we can't operate on that. We have to think in a completely different horizon line. And I suppose that's why it also speaks to me of these guys are in business to be good ancestors and they're also in business to create legacy. And they understand, he says, you can't build a regenerative business with a time frame of a decade. You've got to be looking at it in a very different mm. time frame context as a consequence of that. Well, you, you asked me my opinion on that. I mean, I happen to think that the problem is much larger, and I'm sure you agree, than, than, than just investment, right? I mean, if you think about the time frame of politics, it's uh, four years or maximum eight years in some parliaments, right? You can get elected for eight years sometimes, mm -hmm. but that's really at the very extreme. And, and you know, policy cycles <clears throat> in some countries are <clears throat> based on governments that are so much even more short lasting. Some of them even, you know, last months. So yes, in investment, it's also a big problem. You know, a venture capital fund has to return its money, uh, you know, within or immediately after spending the money of, of that uh, fund cycle. And those fund cycles are, I guess, a decade long, if you stretch it a little bit, you know, six to 10 years. Mm. So that is not the cycle you're talking about here, for sure. No. You know, the horizon is much, much longer. Yes. So and we I need think different investment vehicles, both on the private side. And I think, uh, ironically, <clears throat> we're in a little bit of a better position when it comes to corporate investment, which is also, you know, where I straddle, right? Mm. If you think about it, corporations, um, many of them, are in it for the long haul. They aim to be great companies, and uh, despite what you know rhetoric would have it, you know there still are some companies that have survived. Um, arguably, a lot of them are tanking this decade, and maybe they will. But there is at least a long-term logic at play in many corporations. They do want to survive, and if you think about nation states, the the concept of nation states, which maybe slightly outdated, I happen to think it is, but there is also a logic there that have enabled at least the basic system to survive, even though the political cycles are shorter. So I think 
you know, there is a possibility both to work within these systems, and then I, I think you have to work beyond them as well. I, I wanted you to maybe bring in one of your other very fascinating uh, case study examples. Um, there is this geolocator company called What Three Words uh, mm. that you speak about in the uh, write about in the book. Yes, and from what I understand of your story. They have divided the world into three meters by three meter squares, which is an utterly fascinating concept. And it opens yeah. up, at least for me in my mind, opportunity not just to locate people and things, but also to take responsibility in a different way for people and things. And I wanted you to speak to maybe both of those aspects. And I know we started off with telecommunications and clearly, mm. you know, geolocation is related to to GPS and to other technologies, you know, I'm not sure which technologies they use, but there are many, many technologies these days that can achieve geolocation. But the question again is the purpose. Why yes. are we locating people and things and, and what do we do with that insight? Yeah, yeah. It was really funny. I met the guys at South by Southwest um, about four, four or five years ago, I think, um, when they were actually quite early stage in in their development. And it initially sort of took me quite a while to get my head around um, why they were doing this. Uh, why would you break the world down into three meter by three meter squares? Um, doesn't everybody have a postcode? Um, <laughs> And right. uh, <laughs> but of course, not everybody has a postcode. You know, you're out here in Mongolia or you know the Sahara or kind of whatever. You know, there there are no postcodes there. And so I thought that um, uh, this is a th this also relates to the idea about scale. I suppose um, in what what businesses deserve to scale. Um, and of course, the you know the, that mantra of you know it only works if it scales. Well, I think certain businesses really deserve to be absolutely uh, you know global. And I think what three words is one of them because it just brings a whole level of kind of efficiency to getting stuff, um, resources to people. I mean, you look at it from a humanitarian perspective or whatever. Um, that ability to really find people of great need. Um, as quickly and as efficiently as you can speaks to me of a way of serving people that are desperate um, to be found and to be helped is the way that I would see it. Um, and that to me is a, as an important tool in um, making those things um, happen. Um, and that's why I think I kind of wanted to put it into the into the book, the idea of uh, yeah navigation and geolocation um, used in the right way. It's in the in service to the greater good of people and planet. I think rather than actually uh, the opposite. I don't know if you want to dig into that a little bit more. Or what, what other what, questions? What came to mind for me was if if we literally took responsibility for our own patch, three meters by three, three meters, then we could save the world, couldn't we? I really like that idea. Um, taking personal responsibility is definitely something which I think is important. And I think it comes back to, yes, that thing about what can I do? What can I do who, here? Um, and what does that mean? And um, for sure, I think that uh, to your point, I suppose, one of the things I think really challenges people right now is what can I do and how can I make something meaningful? Some of these things that feel so big to me that I can't address them. But a bit like the Climeworks example is they're building a model, which is you can be part of uh, addressing this. And I think I quite like yeah, the three meter by three meter thing. What, what if I was, you know, just to go out and, you know, there's, there's a pothole in my lane and I would say I would take responsibility for that. I'm not going to wait for someone else to come and fix it. I can fix that. Or is there a group of people within, you know, a, a section of uh, where I am where we could collectively come together and collaborate, for example? Um, and I like that idea. It's a really good yeah, one. The, the, 
the the reason I, I brought that up is I've been thinking for for a while now, uh, and I'm trying to develop this idea of what if we literally and and I didn't have three meters by three meters. I thought of slightly larger patches, but but I think the the the, the point is the same. W what if we actually made ourselves responsible for the biodiversity of a certain patch of land? Now mm. we were talking about gardening earlier, right? Yeah. Let's just say even for your own garden, you know, some organic gardeners see it this way. They feel responsible for their patch of land being organic and they see it as a custodian relationship. Now, what yeah. if you can scale that up to every person on this planet to say that we are co-responsible for the biodiversity of one patch of land? I think it's a... Uh, uh... I think that's really important. I mean, you've taken me back to, you know, the building of my garden, um, you know, which I did for over 20 years, the two acre plot and we composted and we grew vegetables and, you know, all sorts of things. And actually you're, so you're really resonating with me now. I was a custodian to that garden. You know, I thought about it every morning when I woke up and I looked out the window and, the uh you know the site was a wonderful thing to see uh in the end but i absolutely felt responsible for it and there's a wonderful book that uh, i would want to recommend um is uh, robin wall kimmerer's book called braiding sweetgrass and um she's a native uh, american first generation part of that uh native american uh, lineage uh she's a, a botanist biologist um scientist uh but her mixture of the natural world is connected to her native american traditions and also the work as uh, a scientist um and she talks about this whole idea around reciprocity and custodianship and I would recommend anyone uh, to read that book and not be affected and moved by the way that she writes and the way that she gets us to think profoundly about the world. And in fact, actually, the program that I run for people, the learning program that I run for people, uh, because one of the foundations I've got in the new book is, is nature, is really getting people to think about that fundamental relationship uh, with the natural world um and i've just got something here actually that she wrote she says um pioneer communities just like pioneer plant communities have an important role in regeneration but they are not sustainable in the long run when they reach the edge of easy energy balance and renewal are the only way they are the only way forward wherein there is a reciprocal cycle between early and late successional systems, each opening the door for the other. The old growth forest is as stunning in its elegance of function as in its beauty. And if we also then thought that, you know, we are we're acting in that fashion, how does that change the way that we are in the world? How does that change the way we are as leaders in the world? And what is it that we are aspiring to as a consequence of acts of regeneration, reciprocity, custodianship, and compassion um, as core drivers in terms of how we think about that role that we could so meaningfully play whilst we're briefly on this planet. Alan, this podcast is is about the future and, and and we've been talking about taking responsibility for the future where, where do you see us going what what is your best assessment of whether these ideas that you have here are going to resonate with a broad enough scope of people that the wor world will tilt in in this direction in the next decade or even as I'm now starting to think about the next 50 years, mm. um, wh where do you see us heading? Well, um, I think we, we talked about this before where you asked me if I was an optimist and uh, <laughs> yes. whether... And you whether, said something. <laughs> so, so, I, so I quoted um, uh, the British comedian Bill Bailey, who was asked uh, 
people said to Bill says people come up to me and they say, uh, Bill, are you an optimist? And he said, Well, I hope so. Um, and uh, we had a good chuckle about that. But I think that it comes back to, um, for me, it's about the narrative and the storytelling that we can describe a world that is better than the one that we currently have for all. And um, that is deeply locked into the idea of beauty and regeneration in terms of an overarching theme. And uh, I, I think the time is not very far away where we will be moving beyond this conversation around sustainability and we will be talking around regeneration and regenerative practices. Um, and we have to get that story out there. Um, I, I think, um, you know, the, the, the truth is, is that beauty, when we really embrace it, is our homecoming. Um, for many, many reasons, we're not allowed to use that word within the concept of business. Um I think it's a provocation. I think it's also an invitation, but I also think it, it is fundamentally true because, it, as I said, it speaks to every aspect of our lives, how we are as individuals, how we treat ourselves, how we treat each other in terms of our human-to-human -human relationships, how we think about the nature of, of business, how, it, how we think about our relationship to the natural world, um, and that, that to me, is all about all of those things being interconnected with each other. And it's connected to those words of joy and wonder and thriving um, and a better future. Um, I quite often say that uh, if we are able to describe a future de destination, if we can imagine a future destination, then it's already possible. Um, and I really like that idea, and I think the 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 battle, if it, if want for a better word, is um, is for us to tell those stories about. It's not about stopping things. It's not about we have to stop living a joyful life. What we need to say is is that we can actually you know redesign, remake, rebuild, regenerate, repurpose restore um, our world uh, in a way that we can look back on where we are now and say, what on earth were we thinking to create the conditions for that part of our lives on this planet? Um, and that actually we can live a very different way of, of living and working, um, which is very different to the one that we currently have. Now, that won't be easy. Uh, it's going to be really, really tough. But that's the job that we've got to do to go through that process of transformation is what I believe. You know, I don't think there's a lot of people right now in the middle of a pandemic who are thinking about what you make me think of now, which is the possibility of a renaissance. Because, I mean, I, I tend to think in long cycles. And if you just look at the dark ages that, you know, in, in some ways were followed by a renaissance, and the Renaissance wasn't widespread across the world at that time. It, it occurred in, in a, a very specific physical location, but at least and then it's, it spread out. And, and, and the benefits, we, you know, we, we all got some part in the benefits. I mean, are, should we be allowed to think that it's possible to create that kind of not just artistic flourishing again, but maybe societal flourishing? Yeah, so um, just to be absolutely clear, um, I absolutely uh, agree with you um, in that this is about a societal flourishing, uh, an economic flourishing, an educational flourishing, um, and we can describe that world. In fact, do, do, the new book, Do Build, has been described as um, a kind of roadmap for that renaissance um, and I've really committed to that. I mean, that, that is for others to describe it that way. All I've tried to do is to say, look, here is, some, uh, is, here is a way of looking at the world foundationally through nature, beauty, biomimicry, design, through a different set of values and metrics, and even the types of governance of businesses that we create. We need to think about the timelines and time horizon lines that we're working to. We need to think about leadership 
um, at an individual level, but equally at a kind of national level um, in terms of what that means. And we need to think about the design questions that we would ask if we were to build those businesses that would be part of that renaissance. Um, you know, in the in the book, I've collected about 50 businesses from many, many different industries. You know, one is a country. There are a number of cities in there, um, right down to, um, you know, a one-man ceramicist, because what I'm saying is a bit like nature. She's so big that we don't know how big she is. So we need to think about scale and timelines like that. But equally, we need to think about the fact that it's also very small and that individually we can make, to your point, a real difference, whatever it is that we do to bring something into the world that is part of that that flourishing and to be optimistic that we can make that contribution. If we have hate in our hearts, guess what? We speak. Um, if we have optimism and hope in our hearts, then we speak a different language. And as you and I both know, and I'm sure as your listeners know, that uh, in some respects, uh, our political agenda has been hijacked around the world by a language which I think is actually uh, a little bit more hateful, um, which has been used and abused. But we can counteract that and say there's a different language that we can speak, and we can speak it from our hearts, and it's a universal language because we all understand it. And that, to me, is why beauty is so important to what we do next. Alan, I, I want to thank you for this uh, very open and, and wide conversation. And I think uh, certainly for me, you remind me of the permission to think much more widely and, and beyond the limits that we are invited to do in our daily lives. And that's uh, so valuable for which I thank you. Well, I've really enjoyed the conversation, Tron. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me on your show. I've, uh, yeah, really enjoyed the conversation. Have a wonderful day, Alan. Thank you. You have just listened to episode 123 of the Futurized podcast with host Tron Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was regenerative business. In this conversation, we talked about what regenerative business practices truly entail, which is to go well beyond sustainability and into beauty. My takeaway is that reclaiming the concept of beauty is transformational both on a personal and a planetary scale, but it cannot happen without introspection, courage, and the power of example. Wonder, joy, and walking in nature can approximate beauty and can give us the inspiration to pursue it in our professional lives. The effects would be healing for the planet, which seems really needed right now, objectively speaking. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 90, Upskilling Youth for the 21st Century Bioeconomy, Episode 73, The Future of Social Learning, or Episode 66, The Serendipity of Social Innovation. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.